0: Hello everyone and welcome to the House of Trust podcast. My name is Sylvain Moisan and every week I'm sharing a moment with an inspiring leader who loves to invest in social and environmental change and helps tell one another and the planet you matter. So together we take the time to think about mental models, behaviors and conditions that help impact investors to trust and collaborate and uh, deliver on their strategy and fulfill their mission. pleasure to welcome Chris West, founder and partner at Sumerian Partners and Sumerian Foundation. And before we dive into Sumerian's work, let me tell you a bit more about my guest today. Chris pioneered an enterprise-based approach to philanthropic investment, long before terms such as venture philanthropy or social enterprise were widely used. He completed doctorate in ecology at Oxford University and then set up a business uh, in the environmental services sector, and because he was so successful with his company, he was appointed a senior environment advisor at the UK's Department for International Development. Chris was also involved in the early discussions around the creation of the Shell Foundation, and he joined soon after its launch in 2000 and became its director in 2008. He's worked with a variety of donors, governments, NGOs and businesses in over 100 developing countries and has lived in both West and East Africa. So, Chris, thanks for being here today. It's a pleasure to have you on board. And and I wonder, when you think of all these experiences in in the UK and overseas, what's the
1: key connection for you? Listening to you present my career, it all sounds like a logical progression, which... uh, it was anything but. Um, so just to reassure anyone else listening that I had some cunning plan from the outset, that's not the case. I guess to answer your question, one good thing and one less good thing. Well, The, the good thing I would think is, I've, I don't know why, but always a conviction in, in trying to do something that leaves something better, whether that's for the planet or people. And Not overly sure where that came from, but it's always been there. And and I've been fortunate in having various roles, both on the environmental side and social side, that have allowed me to put that sort of value into practice. I guess on on the negative side of my character, I suspect it's a little bit being disruptive in not accepting the status quo. So if I look back over my career, rightly or wrongly, it's trying to do things differently. And I guess for anyone else looking at, you know, tackling environmental or social issues, I mean clearly there's an urgency, but I think there is a need for different ways of tackling systemic challenges and just simple foreign traditional models. So I've look, I've been fortunate in being able to be in a position to to be disruptive and and value driven
0: right it isn't that quality being disruptive in uh, in an entrepreneurial
1: jd nowadays uh, yeah look i mean everyone <laughs> well it has its drawbacks <laughs> i think i think that there's a there's a benefit in being disruptive but at some point you, you need to stop being disruptive and, and then actually focus on whatever it is you, you've decided to do differently so I think otherwise one can keep tinkering too much. So a strength of all entrepreneurs is I think they always try and look for doing things differently in a way that adds adds value to whoever they want to, to help. But but yeah, my experience of working with some exceptional entrepreneurs, most of them at, at some point then really focus in on delivery and move beyond the disruption phase into into let's do more of it better, deeper.
0: Fantastic. So from ecology to sumerians would you still take with you from your knowledge or ecology into sumerians and the work at
1: sumerians look i failed in in many ways i mean like a lot of us who started off in the environment sector i mean we are facing a nature crisis at the moment yeah everyone talks about the climate crisis but the the other side of the coin is the nature crisis and i think you yeah, that's gone under the the carpet a lot more but but i personally think that A reason why that problem exists is historically the environment was treated as a free good and and obviously therefore people could mine it or abuse it with without any economic gain so people like myself put a lot of effort into protecting things that were of value but we never had an environment sort of economic model the interesting dynamic now is the link between the nature crisis and the climate crisis where suddenly you know locking up carbon either below or above ground generates some sort of economic value which then links back to you know, biodiversity preservation but it goes back to i think trying to do things differently in a way that has a if you like not just a values based approach to environmental management but, but a business logic to it there isn't an economic value to something that otherwise was a free good and in the same way on the social side you know, if i look at most social enterprises you know a lot of the statistics are around the financial performance of those but the underlying and real strength of social enterprises is the social value that they create. Gain is often treated as a free good, it's an externality. It's a nice story, but we're not capturing the inherent value of that to society. So then it devolves back to, you know, just looking at the financial performance of social enterprises, which for me is is an important but certainly not the whole part of their value as a, as a whole. And I think, again, we need to look at different models where we capture and value externalities, whether they're environmental or social. For me, you know, social enterprises are a hugely important new sectoral approach to tackling systemic challenges. I mean, different to the state, they're different to the charitable sector, both of which are hugely important. But business models that that try and serve hard to reach populations in ways that generate both financial return and measurable impact for me are yeah, where the innovation is and where the scale is at the moment. Mm.
0: So, Chris, how do you bring value at Sumerians? Like if you tell us more about Sumerian and, and your philosophy behind it.
1: <laughs> I suppose the hard lesson I learned by setting up my own business, which I mean, it wasn't that given my age. It wasn't called an enterprise then, but it had the underlying Desire to do something good rather than simply just just make money. Yeah, setting out any business is difficult, and if you think about the ingredients for, for doing it, which are essentially, yeah, you've got to have a suitable policy environment or a market demand, you've got to have skills, you've got to have networks, and you've got to have money. How do you then acquire all of those? And and I guess in a social enterprise context, I, I think the challenges of growing that usually doing a, a, a new product or service offering, either to people who've never had it before, or if they've had it before, it's been free, is far harder than a normal business. So if we think from the bottom up, what these organisations need is a blend of skill support, market linkages, and appropriately structured finance. So if intermediaries like Sumerian are, are to help them, then, then we really need to respect that Demand from the market and provide that blend of products and services and I think yeah the word investment is often in my view misinterpreted to mean just finance or money if you're investing in a growing social enterprise or indeed any enterprise you need to invest more than money I mean money clearly is important and it clearly needs to be structured in a way that is appropriate and affordable to that organization but it needs Go alongside all those non-financial values, you know, the skill support, the networks that are equally important to viable growth. So essentially Sumerian, the model Sumerian has largely evolved out of my experience at Shell Foundation, where we were, again, sort of bucking the trend of a normal philanthropic organisation by believing that our value to our partners went beyond just the, the money that we could provide. How could we almost partner with people, sharing goals, us offering advice as and where appropriate on top of what the, the organisation itself had and doing it over a long period of time? So, yeah, that model we're applying to the UK. And, and if I look at the UK, in many ways, I find the social enterprise market in the UK exciting in one regard, in that clearly you know, the statistics show that there are a lot more social enterprises now than before. But on the other hand, if I look at my experience back to emerging markets, actually relatively few in the UK have grown beyond the early stage. So we're therefore, I think we have a, a really interesting market that is pretty subscale. And I partly believe that's because it can't access the right blend of products and services to help it. But its ambition so essentially what we're trying to do is sumerian i mean we're never going to you know, no one organization is ever going to yeah, untap the whole market so we want to be able to show that the right blend of skills support pre and post investment and the right type of investment can help the market grow and then do it in a way yeah, you know, just as we did the shell foundation where it was open source and we try and share that learning with others so that more other people can can again provide the right through a blend of products and services that are that appropriate to, to market need. The other thing I'd say is, I think there is a fundamental risk that social investment unintentionally might go down the track of commercial investment, in that you know, often decisions are clearly based on you know, risk and, and return. I think in looking at risk, I think the inevitable challenge is that investors can perceive there to be less risk. People look like them, speak the same language, go to the same events. And I think unintentionally that can lead to an inequitable supply of social investment. And I think the onus is on the investor to to look further to those who might otherwise be less apparent and equally to address what I think is still a big issue, which is the understandable wariness of of people taking on support from people who they themselves don't know and so if, for me I think that one of the big challenges in the UK is not just to grow the social enterprise market but to do it in a way that understands and recognizes and addresses the equity dimension of this. If I look at our portfolio in Sumerian at the moment 75% of the people we've backed are are organizations led and founded by women 50 percent by people of color it's not that there aren't phenomenal resilient excellent entrepreneurs out there at all the the issue is how do we as sort of people trying to support them a make the effort to find them and then b make the effort to sort of present what we offer in a way that you know, reassures them and is, is aligned to their own objects. And and then thirdly, we structure it in a way that actually helps them grow. So I think it's not that the market isn't there. It's, I think it's beholden on us as providers to do it in a way mm. where we, we have to make yeah. more of an effort.
0: It it reminds me of, I, I listened to Joy Anderson's podcast from uh, Joy Anderson from Criterion Ventures and she was, uh, she was saying, we have to change the way we build the support, the capital. We don't have to ask for the entrepreneurs to adapt to us we have to adapt to them <laughs> and and this is a way to show respect as well for what's needed
1: it's not a it's not a complex problem i mean any business will go out of business if it didn't understand its target market i mean very crudely so if you are an investor if you don't understand your clients and and give them what they want there's a risk that you're not likely to grow now i just think that it's, you know, the, the long of unintentionally support has been driven by investors getting their money from certain sources with certain restrictions on it that make it far more difficult for them to then provide it in a way that meets the needs of those who are slightly more reticent or reserved about taking on investment. So you know, in, in many ways we've been lucky at Sumerian, just as I was at Shell Foundation, by having a pool of money that has no restrictions on it. In other words, we can, from the outset, decide how best to deploy it without having to meet someone else's restrictions. And I think as soon as you are freed from that, then you can start taking a very market-based approach and and actually try and understand what it is the market needs and how we can respond to that and structure what we have. Rather than, and this typically happens, not just in the UK, but around the world, government says it needs to be like this you then get it and you're forced into having to meet certain objectives which might or might not resonate with market demand so the the benefit we've had i mean both at Shao foundation and Sumerian, sumerians that the money that we've had given to us to deploy is unrestricted how best can you provide it which inevitably means if you look at these social enterprises you, you quickly yeah, ascertain that what they need is patient and flexible finance in lots of ways that reflects how they perform. It's not tied to a fixed-term repayment structure. It's yeah, not necessarily linked to sort of an exit based on stellar performance, but it's the sort of money I would have liked when I had my own business. And critically, it's linked to helping that enterprise understand itself, the support it needs, yeah, because a lot of people understandably might be very technically competent in the area that they're working on, but don't understand things like money or business strategy or governance. These are all critical sort of support functions. Let's let's address that with people. Because at the end of the day, it's their it's their venture. So help help them understand those risks and at the same time help them understand the pros and cons of investment and the different types of investment. So you're educating and empowering people to understand it rather than simply saying it's this product or no product. This is a two-way process, which is why I've always felt it's a partnership approach. Unfortunately, with, with money, there is always the presumption, I have money and you don't, therefore I'm more important than you. Whereas in reality, if I do have money, we can only fulfill our mutual objectives if we work together. So we've got to break down this view that those with money, are calling the shop. Actually, it's the underlying market that is more powerful because mm. at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to deliver the impact.
0: That's wonderful. I've noticed these peers emerging here. That's your pro-patient, flexible capital, pro-provision of holistic support, underpinned by a notion of partnership and equality. And a proponent of 3S, look, we've got an acronym, <laughs> Systemic Sustain and Scale the Impact. You're you're obsessed about impact, right?
1: Yes, that's what I, I think everyone should be. <laughs>
0: that's it. That's, so t- tell me, if, if there was a Sumerian School of Impact Investing, what would you most challenge your students on?
1: A, a lot of my own learning, and indeed, yeah, you know, my colleagues at Sumerian, in terms of their own learning, has come from the fact that we've all help start up or grow organizations ourselves, whether they're charitable or commercial or whatever. So it's almost come from a we talk about the value of lived experience for a social enterprise tackling a, an issue or challenge that they they have personal experience of. But but from our side the lived experience is we, we've been in the shoes of the people that we're trying to support. And I think because of that, there is a sort of recognition that this is <laughs> this is hard. It's not easy sort of an affinity with with them and, and what they're trying to do. So to some extent, uh, I think it would be great if there were more people in the investment sector who had direct experience of actually living the life of the market that they're trying to service. You know, who have that, what I would call, a mix of business DNA and impact DNA. And I think you do need both strands of DNA if you're really going to deliver social impact in a business-like way so almost the sort of idea of how how can we offer them not necessarily apprenticeships but I mean other ways in which people see life from the other side more because at the end of that I think that makes you a better investor and I'd like to feel that the person receiving that support they get better support as well and I do think in the final look I, I've I don't come from a finance background so Excuse me for anything I say or think, but I do think there's a fundamental need to go back and ask ourselves why are we financing things? It's the why, it's not the, not the how, it's the what are we trying to achieve here. Those on the finance seed need to ask the question why, far more than how. And the why for me is tied up with not only a financial return but as a social value return that needs to be factored into. The whole process of giving. And as I say, it's not just giving money, but giving support in, in general. But it, it has to be linked to a value concept or an impact concept.
0: That's coming back a lot in what you say, yes. So I pick up on some virtues here, like patience, support, different outlook of, of on risk, the social value, the value, the why, and trust as well. It's it's emerging and it's great because we're in the house of trust. So I wonder, if we talk about trust, what, what leads to trust in your, in your sense? Is it an instinct? Is it a formula? What's, is it an experience? How do you make that happen? That's a big question for two minutes.
1: I find lots of parallels between investing in organizations with sort of human relationships in general. I mean, you start off dating each other and you have a cup of coffee and you have a chat with each other. And at the end of it, you decide whether you want another coffee or not. It is essentially a process of building up not just trust but sort of shared views on objects and everything else. So it's an iterative process. So it doesn't happen overnight. And it's equal because you know, from an investor side, you know, we obviously have to get a sense of trust on the part of the partner that they're going to use any support we we provide in a way that you know we would like it to be used. And, and equal on their side, they need to trust us that. Yeah, you know, our motives are aligned and we're not going to suddenly change our behavior and expect them to do things of a different nature, you know, be it either push them to more financial returns or reduce impact or vice versa. And I kind of feel that if if you're really going to have a successful partnership. In any relationship, it's got to be open. You've got to, you got to, yeah. if you don't like something, you've got to say it. Now, whether you say it in public or not, you probably do it private first. But you've got the principle of a shared set of objectives, bringing whatever you can to the table, knowing that the other person is bringing different things as well. It's of equal value.
0: We slowly, just coming to some sort of conclusion with beautiful pillars that that you've shared and you've just added on that transparency, that openness as well. I wonder what, what would be a, a breakthrough for you and Sumerian? What would be a bigger thing to do or a different thing to do that you haven't touched on yet?
1: One of the many mistakes I made at Shell Foundation was having a model that I think was genuinely different but genuinely impactful, but it never really got replicated and it wasn't mm-hmm. rocket science. So I'm learning from that. I, I would like to see more how what we're doing as sumerian with the the good fortune of not having had money that restricts us to do certain things rather than other things Is then using that as a sort of wider open source learning platform for others in in a way that hopefully in a small but significant way you can start influencing a, a a sector so i i never see us just as a fund where you're you know, deploying a certain amount of money and to organisations, you'll do hell well. It's, how can you serve as a sort of, I guess, an, a, an influencer or a catalyst for, for wider change? Now, that's only going to happen if obviously the organisations you support all do well, I mean, in terms of, of their own growth. And, you know, so you've got to start with showing that your model actually delivers which is based on the people you select and how they perform and, and show impact. If one makes the hopeful assumption that we can show that, then how do you go beyond that and try and demonstrate this way of working is more likely to lead the sector to, to grow? So it's, it's shifting from being just a crudely an investor to uh, either an advocate or, or an influencer. Yeah, and I don't think we're at that point, but I think we're very conscious that that is part of the journey, whereas the mistake I made at Shell Foundation was never really thinking that was even part of the journey. And obviously, like a big corporate brand, yeah, you have to be very, very careful and wary about not being seen to promote a corporate brand as such. I and mean, it's, it's all around the model that is is interesting. So I guess in 10 years from now, if we were having this conversation, are more people providing a broader range of products and services that enable the social enterprise market to grow in a much more equitable and dynamic way in the UK. We can trace back in a very small way that we've had some influence on that process. That would be very pleasing for for me. Mm.
0: Wow. Chris, with these words, I thank you so much, so much for being uh, with us in the House of Trust.
1: Huge thank you, Savannah.
0: Now you know everything about the link between dating, engaging in healthy relationships, and social investment, and how you can make a significant change when you intentionally and collectively make the decision to be a genuine advocate and empathetic influencer. So, next time, we'll hop to Brazil with Daniela Baroni-Suarez, who is the CEO of Snowball Impact Management Limited. Together, we'll follow a journey that will take us from risk, creativity, to trust and transparency. And we'll look at her almost childlike perennial curiosity in what the human spirit can do and achieve. And as crises keep surfacing here and there, why It's Urgent Impact Investors Should Stop Rearranging the Chairs on the Deck of the Titanic. So join us for more episodes of Be and Think in the House of Trust. You'll find the show wherever you can find your favorite podcasts. And I'd love you to share your thoughts with me. Connect with me on LinkedIn and or through my website, where you can also find a lot of goodies that will contribute to igniting your thinking. Until we meet again. Be well and think well together. Bye-bye.